standing with me out of respect to the Word and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and um, the Lord willing, we'll conclude our exposition of the most excellent way, which is, of course, the way of love, as the Apostle Paul expounds it to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, here is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's ask God to help us understand. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen? You may be seated. Well, I guess it's no surprise that humans, being what we are, creatures of habit, form deep attachments to things. We form deep attachments to people and relationships, that's obvious. Uh, We form deep attachments to our pets, that's understandable. And uh, we also form deep attachments to even inanimate things, oddly enough, such as blankets and pillows and clothes and cars and places. Uh, But the problem with uh, these kinds of attachments is sometimes they involve imposing limitations upon us and lead us to accept uh, less than the best for ourselves. And of course, that leads to costs, and that leads to problems, and that leads to deficiencies, all of which could have been easily remedied had we not formed these kinds of attachments to things and rather uh, look to the Lord and to uh, His will for us. And that's precisely uh, what the Corinthians have been doing. They have been forming deep attachments to things that are less than the best for them. And we know that because the Apostle Paul uh, frankly tells us that in verse 31 of chapter 12. He says, I show you a still more excellent way. Now you remember, as we look back into chapter 12, that you can see that the Corinthians seem to be obsessed uh, with these temporary spiritual gifts, with tongues and with prophecies and with um, miracles and all different kinds of manifestations of temporary spiritual uh, graces and of gifts. And the Apostle, as he sums up that chapter, he says, yes, go ahead and pursue these gifts. Uh, They're necessary for the time being, but the Apostle Paul says there's something that is far more important that you need to form a deep and personal and eternal attachment to, and that is the excellent way of love. 
So uh, he launches into this very thorough exposition of love in chapter 13. I'll remind you in verses 1 through 3, he says you can have any of these spiritual gifts. Uh, You could even have a faith that moves mountains. And yet, if you don't have love, you have nothing. A sobering thought. In verses 4 through 7, in 15 different descriptions, 7 positive, 8 negative, he expounds for us uh, the excellency of the way of love. And now he caps off uh, this exposition of the most excellent way by contrasting uh, what is temporary, and that is the spiritual gifts now, uh, with what is eternal, and that is love. And he concludes the passage here, and this is what you want to keep your eye on this morning, is this. He says, the greatest is love. The greatest thing is love, he says. It has no equal. And that's what we want to think about this morning. The greatest thing is love. That's the thing that we are to pursue. That's the thing that we need to long to form a deep, personal, eternal attachment to. And we're going to follow Paul's argument in order that we can understand why it is uh, that love is the greatest And we're going to see that, first of all, by noticing that uh, love is the greatest because it is superior to the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts. Now, just to sort of get a handle on that, you can see uh, what those are. He lists them here. uh, Verse 8 and 9, he says, uh, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away with. He says, We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial be done away with. I just want you to notice uh, a few things here. First of all, the part thing. It's partial, really. It would be better for us to translate it in English that way. Uh, these things are all partial. They're incomplete, in other words. Uh, we learn in bits and pieces without, in a sense, uh, having the whole put together in a unified framework. He says these things are partial. And then he talks about the things that are partial. He says uh, there are these various spiritual gifts, which, yes, are important because they're revelatory. He says uh, one of those gifts would be prophecy. And we know what that means. Uh, Going back to chapter 12, it was one of those spiritual gifts that he explained about. Uh, He said uh, prophecy is about an ability uh, to speak inspired, infallible words which carry intrinsic divine authority. Now, that doesn't sound like a meager gift. It is an ability uh, based upon the grace of God as He comes upon individuals uh, to speak His very words to others. So you have God putting uh, His words in your mouth. That's what prophecy is about. You have tongues here, which is not about speaking in gibberish. It's not about babbling. It's not about incoherent or unintelligible speech. It is the very thing that is described in the book of Acts, which is described in chapter 2 of Acts, as the ability or the capacity to communicate divine special revelation from God to men in the language that is natural to the person who is receiving the message. And so even though, uh, let's say, I didn't know Greek as I was standing on the day of Pentecost, uh, yet if I had this capacity uh, to speak in tongues... I would be able to speak in Greek so that the receiver could understand the message that was being communicated, even though I'd never studied a sentence of Greek and didn't even know the alphabet. So that's what tongues is about. And and here the Apostle Paul says that's partial. It's temporary. 
And then he talks about knowledge. And we'd be clear about this. Uh, he's not referring uh, to the hard sciences and the social sciences and the global perspective on knowledge here. Uh, he's referring very narrowly uh, to the gift of knowledge, which is called the word of knowledge, which is about uh, receiving a divine special revelation about redemption and then being able to communicate that to fellow believers. So you have those gifts here. Those are the incomplete gifts. And here's the key. Remember, we're pursuing the point here that love is better uh, than these temporary uh, gifts because they expire. And you can see that here in verse 10. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And as we think about that, uh, I just want to take just one moment to dabble in a bit of controversy here because you can't get around it. It's probably in your study Bibles this morning. And uh, some people who have gotten into this debate over whether the spiritual gifts uh, continue on after the apostolic age, the cessationists versus the non-cessationists, have come to this passage. And you have some non-cessationists who look at this passage and they say that the perfect refers to the canon. They would argue that the perfect refers to the 27 books of the New Testament, and they would argue when that 27th and final letter was written to the church, the spiritual gifts ceased and they were done away with. They appeal to this verse and they say the canon is what is perfect, and that puts an end to the partial, which in this case obviously would be uh, the tongues and the prophecy and the word of knowledge and so forth. Well, you have uh, the other side, of course, the non-cessationists who would look at this and say that's ridiculous because there's no way we can equate, equate in this instance a perfect with canon. And they would argue that actually in this case, the perfect refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one, for instance, uh, John Piper, who holds the non-cessationist view, uh, says, if the coming of the perfect in verse 10 refers to the second coming of Christ, then the natural understanding of the text is that the gifts will continue until Jesus comes. And so you have two sides here. You have those who are claiming the perfect is the canon. You have those who are claiming that the perfect is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those people who hold that say, see... What Paul is arguing is that these temporary gifts will be with the church until Jesus Christ returns in power and glory at the second coming. Now, I think that this argument is wrong-headed entirely because uh, Paul isn't taking on that particular question. In this instance, Paul is not taking on the issue of when these gifts will be done. The primary issue in this passage is that Paul is contrasting what is temporary with what is eternal. And so the, the entire argument is wrong-headed, but it's often uh, one of the most obvious things that is commented on when you come to this passage. It would be in your study Bibles. But the thing that we need to keep our eye on here in this passage is that Paul is saying the things that are temporary, the prophecy and the tongues and the word of knowledge and the gifts and so forth, they are going to be eliminated. They are going to be done away with because they're partial. You say, well, why in the world would the things that are partial be done away with? And the reason why is that when Jesus Christ comes in power and glory and climactically introduces the kingdom of God with power, that which is partial and that which is incomplete and that which is, in a sense, insufficient would have no place there. 
It's obvious. It would be completely incompatible with the nature of that coming age, which is perfect. And so Paul's main point here, as he begins his argument about the the fact that love is the greatest, is first of all to say, uh, one reason why we know that love is the greatest, because of all of these temporary things, they are going to be invalidated, they are going to be uh, revoked, they are going to be put away. Yet love is going to endure. And the reason why love is going to endure is because it's complete. It's fully complete. There's nothing lacking in love. There's nothing partial or incomplete in love. And so he says these gifts have an expiration date. Now the real meat of the passage comes in the following verses, and this is where we want to settle in. The real meat of the passage and the things that are just eye-popping and stunning uh, this morning uh, come in verses 11 and 12. And so I hope you have your Bibles out. I hope you see this for yourself, because now the Apostle Paul, he doesn't leave this argument about the temporary nature of these gifts. He goes on to illustrate and expand upon it. And he does it using a series of comparisons. And the first comparison that he introduces here in verse 11 is the comparison between the state of childhood and the state of adulthood. And he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now it's obvious what is in the mind of the Apostle Paul here. What the Apostle Paul is doing is he's taking on the nature of the temporary gifts, and he's saying it's flat out just like being a child. It's an inferior way of speaking. It's an inferior way of knowing. It's an inferior way of reasoning. And the reason why it's inferior is because it's based on a lack of knowledge and experience. That's obvious. That's the point of the contrast. And we know this from our own lives. Uh, That the state of being a child is that of being inferior in terms of knowledge and wisdom and insight and understanding. Now, I know that's the one thing often that young people don't think uh, that they uh, think is wrong. But you see, one of the things that happens the older you get is that you begin to realize that your parents were a lot smarter than you were and you didn't even know it. But while you're a young person, uh, you don't think that at all. Uh, You have more wisdom, you have more knowledge, you have more insight, you have more understanding about things, and you just wish that your parents could grow up to where you are. And that's part of the immaturity of the childhood state. Because the knowledge that it does have is based upon a lack of experience and insight and wisdom. And Paul says, yet when I became a man, I put childish things away. And that put away there is definitive. It's climactic and it is definitive. And the Apostle Paul is saying, he's sort of, uh, this analogy is just rooted in experience. That as he became a man, he realized that all of those uh, attitudes and ideas and reasons and, and, and mannerisms and ways of speaking were all inferior. They were inferior to an adult level of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and capacities to speak and to reflect and to meditate and apply. He just said, put them all away. That's just to illustrate this contrast uh, between the temporary and the partial and the incomplete and the perfection of what is to come in terms of knowing about God. Now, this next one is really what's going to blow our socks off in verse 12. And that is here, the apostle uh, compares now and then. And what he's done here is in verse 12, he explains and expounds upon 
uh, that initial uh, contrast between childhood and maturity they talked about in verse 11. And we know that because he says four in verse 12, okay? Uh, that means he's, he's connecting his thought in verse 12 to what he just said in verse 11. He says, I'm going to clarify it even further. And here's what he says. He says, this is what knowledge is like now. This is what the knowledge is like that comes through the inferior spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, a word of knowledge. He says, we see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. Now I know in part that then I will know fully just as also I have been fully known. You see, the first part of this contrast is this. The Apostle Paul says, here's what our knowledge is like now through these temporary spiritual gifts. He says, it's, look, it's like looking into a mirror. This would have made sense to the Corinthians because they were a city of mirrors, literally. Because the uh, copper trade and brass trade there was so, uh, you know, so well known, um, so thriving, uh, they happen to be the mirror capital of the ancient world. And uh, when you polish out brass or copper really finely, it helps you see uh, not the best reflection in the world, but one that's sort of adequate. Now, it would have been better if this was translated properly. He says, we see in a mirror dimly. That's not what the original says. The original says, and you probably have a translation note in your column, and even sometimes, you know, the New American Standard doesn't get everything just right. It's very rare. It's very rare when that happens. But here it says, uh, we see in a mirror in a riddle. Or in an enigma. It's saying that when God's revelation comes to His church in the form of tongues or prophecies or word of knowledge, or we could even expand that beyond that, even to the very scriptures themselves, one of the things the Apostle Paul says is that constitutes an enigma. Yes, there's, there's sufficiency in it. Uh, yes, there is a real knowledge of God in it. Uh, yes, there is something in there that is substantial and important for us. But at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul says, if you compare that to the final revelation of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ at the arrival of His kingdom, it's like an enigma. It's like seeing faint outlines of the truth compared to the reality. He compares this. He says, uh, we see in the mirror dimly, but then he says face to face. That's a very important phrase because it is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to contrast two ways of God revealing Himself. And one passage that unfolds this, this contrast is when uh, God speaks to Aaron and to Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, because they were getting all haughty about Moses and, and trying to take a slice of leadership because they thought Moses uh, was getting all this glory of being the top man. And uh, they wanted some of that for themselves. And God uh, straightens them out saying, Look, and when I speak to other people, I speak to them basically in riddles. I speak to them in dreams. But when I speak to my servant Moses, I speak to him eye to eye and face to face. You see, what he's doing is exalting Moses because Moses has received this very immediate, special, intimate, personal revelation of God to him. And you see, in a sense, his authority is rooted and grounded in this very perspicuous revelation of God to him. 
It's not like those other people who had uh, to receive revelation as they were sleeping in dreams at night. No, God comes to Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes before him. He shows his glory. Moses had unique experiences of this. But yet Paul is saying that still nothing, you see, it seemed to him mere dimly, but then face to face, when Jesus Christ comes, we are going to see in a way that's far more clear than we could ever have imagined. Now, the next phrase is the one that just causes you to stand and, and just stunned. In awe, but also thrilled. Notice he says in the last part of verse 12, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, now this is the key, just as I also have been fully known. Now, the real weight and force of of this comparison is in the just as. What Paul says, I will know fully just as God knows me. The comparison is the fullness and the exhaustiveness of God's knowledge of us. And the Apostle Paul says, uh, I'm going to know God just as fully as He knows me. Oh, that's far beyond anything the Apostle Paul ever says in all of his words. You know, it's so uh, interesting that Paul would be the one to say this. Because when Paul talks about the knowledge of God, it's almost like he's always uh, uh, putting his hand over his mouth. And being very restrained in how he talks about the ways in which we know God and the depths and the exhaustiveness and the extent. And and here the Apostle Paul uh, really blows our minds saying, I will know God as fully as He knows me. Now, what Paul doesn't mean is that we're going to know uh, the divine mind fully. That's not the point of this. And we're not going to have divine knowledge. It's always going to be a knowledge according to our creaturely status. Here's what he's aiming at. Now, I think William Hendrickson is 100% correct when he explains it like this. He says, as God knows Paul as his adopted son, so Paul will fully know God as his father. You see, it's a knowing according to a relationship. What Paul is saying did is that God knows Paul fully as his adopted son. Uh, that, that gives us the sense of, of a very intimate knowledge and acquaintance, of a very deep, uh, a deep bond and fellowship and relationship. And, and what Paul is saying is that when the perfect comes, he's going to know God is his father and as his father in a way that far exceeds our awareness of this relationship we have with God now. Now, a verse in the New Testament that sort of takes us by the hand and and leads us to think uh, about this kind of knowledge in that way uh, is 1 John 3, verse 2. You can turn there if you want. Uh, I'm just going to read it. It says, um, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. Now here's a very important thing that John does here. He he sets up a contrast of two experiences. 
experiences of the knowledge of our sonship. On the one hand, you have this knowledge of sonship, which is according to the now times. And John says the experience of that knowledge now is that it doesn't yet appear what we will be. In fact, often what a sense of the knowledge of this sonship is, it feels often like a, um, a case of mistaken identity. And we've been told that we're sons of God. And we have the promises in the Word of God that we're sons of God. We understand the logic of adoption that it's on account of, of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who by His obedience to God's commandment, by His death on the cross, uh, secures a place in God's family for us. Oh, we know all of those things. Uh, but the, the awareness and the sense of it sometimes is lacking because when we look at our life, when we look at our experiences, we feel more like stepchildren than we do real family. And the reason why that is so is because often when we come to Jesus Christ, our life gets worse than before we were a Christian. It's more riddled with difficulty. It's more full of trials and confusing circumstances. And as the world looks at our life and they say, oh, that's what it means to become a Christian. Now to be in poverty. Now to have struggles. Now to have pains and sorrows. Now to have all of these perplexing and difficult and weighty trials. That's what it's like. You see, we get into trouble if we sell Christianity as this wonderful experience of life change. I came to Jesus and all my bills got paid. I came to Jesus and everything just magically got better. That's not how it works. Uh, Jesus never promised that, by the way. Jesus promised to His disciples, He said, if you want to be my disciple, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to serve Me. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you might as well just grab a hold of My hand, because I'm going to lead you right in the midst of the eye of the storm. It's not about gold watches and bling. It's a lot more about poverty and difficulty and strife and hard times and trial because God wants to refine us through the furnace of affliction. But you see, that process leads to an experience of the knowledge of our adoption where we say, wow, am I mistaken in my identity? Am I truly a son of God? It's hard in some of those uh, circumstances and experience of pain to say, is this really my father? Because our expectations of a father is, is one of generosity and of love and, and protection and care. And that doesn't mean that God isn't all of those things to us, but sometimes we don't feel it because we're so concentrated on the difficulty in our lives. It's hard sometimes to fully embrace that. But John says the day is coming when when we're not going to feel like we have a case of mistaken identity. A time is coming in the future, he says, when we will see Jesus Christ face to face. And it will then appear what we are. Uh, the true uh, ramifications of sonship and adoption and being a part of the divine family will be evident and visible and public. Uh, the experience of the knowledge of our sonship uh, when we see Jesus Christ is going to be just an enormous uh, experience for us. But what's the key to that change in experience? Well, it's so clear. Seeing Jesus. 
seeing the very image and representation of the divinity will change everything for us. In a moment, we will then experience what the Apostle Paul says here. That I will know fully, just as I have been known fully. In that moment, we are going to understand with such enormous depth that God is our Father and that we are His children. That it will literally thrill us and change us forever. I'm afraid that we just don't have, in a sense, the capacities to fully understand this yet. This is an enormous thought that we would one day know God as fully as our Father, as He knows as fully, that we are His children. Uh, it's, it's too marvelous, in a sense, uh, for words. Something. Uh, this glorious expectation of the future knowledge of what it means to be God's children. And uh, that's what Paul says, the reason why this knowledge that we have through tongues and prophecy and word of knowledge is it's okay. But it's nothing like what is to come. And you know, in saying that, uh, we want to be quick uh, to point out, as Calvin does though, and I think he has a good point here, uh, when he says that the knowledge of God that we now have from His Word is indeed certain and true. It has nothing in it that is confused or perplexed or dark. He says but it's spoken of comparatively. That's the key. It's comparatively. It's, it's not to denigrate the Word of God. That, that, that's not it at all. We don't mean to denigrate the Scriptures and somehow uh, say that they're insufficient or incomplete for us or, or that we're deficient uh, in, in the knowledge that we need to have about, about our salvation, about our relationship with God, about worship, about uh, faith and life. We don't mean to say that. We're just saying, as Paul says, it's comparative to uh, just the enormous riches and depths of this a future revelation of God face to face when we won't need to know God through the medium of printed uh, scripture but we'll know God by seeing face to face so we don't denigrate the word this morning we just by seeing this contrast between uh, what's now and temporary and and partial we realize that uh, there is just something uh, tremendous that awaits us in the future revelation of God to us through His Son. And so, the first point that Paul argues here is that love is greater because love is superior to the temporary spiritual gifts of which will fade away. And that leads us now to our second point. And it probably won't take as long, but... Uh, it's still a very, very important point, and that is uh, that love is is the greatest, and it's superior to the the spiritual gifts that that the Corinthians are so obsessed with, and so attached to. It, it's greater uh, because of its nature. It's greater because of its of its nature, and and you begin to see something of its of its nature already in verse eight, the very first phrase there. He says that love never fails. Uh, Literally, it never falls. 
Now, the sense of, uh, of what Paul is saying here is it never fades away. So that's the nature of it. It's eternal. And we've already been saying this uh, in, in many places, but we haven't really looked at, at these words yet. But you can also see that the Apostle is saying the same thing again in verse 13. When he says, uh, but now faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. The verb there is in the present tense. And it's saying they're always remaining. Faith, hope, and love are always remaining. That's underscoring something about their nature. They're eternal. And, and you see those first words there in verse 13 are important. Again, because he says, but now. That, that's a logical conclusion. It's not about some temporal framework. It's a logical conclusion. He's looking back over the arguments that he's been making about uh, the partial being replaced with the perfect, about the comparisons between childhood and adulthood, the, com- the comparison about uh, seeing through a, a mirror in, in riddles versus knowing God face to face. He looks back at all of those arguments and he said, here's what we know about love. Um, it's so much greater because it abides. It's not like the temporary or the partial or the incomplete. Love is the greatest because it lasts forever and ever and ever. And then, of course, uh, that leads us uh, to some questions. That leads us to some questions because of what Paul then says. Right after he says that faith, hope, and love abide, he says the greatest is love. He says faith and hope are wonderful, uh, but there's a hierarchy. Love, he says, is the greatest. And as we begin to ask the question, well, why is that the case? It's fairly obvious why love is greater than the temporary spiritual gifts uh, because of its very nature. Uh, Love prevails and lasts forever and ever and ever. So that's easy. But if faith and hope last forever, uh, why is it that that love is better? And uh, there's some wrong ways we can go with that. You might say, well, love is is really better because we won't really need faith in heaven. (laughs) Because faith is about now. It's before sight makes everything reality to us. And uh, there is a little bit of truth in that, but not full truth, because uh, faith is the thing that connects us to Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. It is the instrument of our union with Jesus Christ. And you see, uh, every blessing is ours because of our union with Christ. You take that away, we have nothing. Our life is joined to Him and to His experience and to His blessing. So if you take faith away, which unites us to Jesus Christ, we're left with nothing. So uh, faith is really uh, essential to us because it must last forever and ever because it is the thing that unites us to Christ. You say, okay, well that can't be the reason. uh, Rather, faith will last and it's very significant. Uh, Hope, you say, well, I can see why faith is uh, enduring because it connects us to Christ and the blessing which is in Him. But hope is really not all that essential because uh, uh, hope gives way when the reality becomes our experience. And we no longer look forward, we actually possess. And, uh, of course, that's not really true either because uh, hope is with us into eternity. 
as one writer says, uh, there will always be the expectation throughout eternity of ever new unfolding glory in the future state. That's a really interesting thought. Sometimes people are scared of heaven because they think it's going to be um, an unending uh, church service. (laughs) And as wonderful as church is, they also like to go home and eat pot roast. Um, That's not... That static idea of, a, of an unending worship service is the wrong idea. Uh, this is such a, it's a... It's an enlarging concept. It's also one that's it's really exciting to think about. And it can only happen because God is who He is, inexhaustibly eternal and glorious. That our experience of eternity is going to be never-ending unfolding of, of greater and greater horizons of insight and joy an unfolding of the glory of God to us in ways that are so spectacular, we're always going to be standing in awe. Now that really brings a thrill to us when we think about a heaven. Okay? And so hope is still be, will be with us in heaven because we'll always be experiencing uh, that awareness of the unfolding of the glory of God, which is inexhaustible. Now if you take away that God... Heaven would be like the Greek underworld, uh, where people were always bored and sighing. If you ever read the Greek uh, literature, it's always full of these terrible pictures of the underworld where everybody is just bored to tears. That's not heaven. But you say, well, you still haven't got to the question, why is love better? And, And let me just give you three things here as we wrap up. And I'm borrowing these. And I'm borrowing them from a very gifted 19th century Scottish preacher named Henry Drummond. In uh, what is one of the more well-known sermons of the Western world, it's entitled, uh, The Greatest Thing in the World. And the first reason that he gives for why love is the greatest is because it lasts forever. Now that's obvious because the passage tells us this, but the way he argues it's very fascinating to me. Uh, He says, we know that love lasts forever because of its effects. Listen to what he says. You will find as you look back upon your life that the moments that stand out, the moments when you have really lived, are the moments when you have done things in a spirit of love. The moments that stand out are the moments when you have done things in the spirit of love. That's fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard it put that way, but it, it's obviously full of wisdom and truth. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to look at the past, and often it looks like a, a, a foggy haze. But if you really try to, to think about what has mattered in your life, it's not hard. It's not hard to find those moments that matter anymore, because you can recall them. Uh, They're about the times when you had fellowship with family and with friends. Uh, They're about uh, the moments when you did something that was worthwhile for other people. They're about the moments when you met somebody on their hospital bed and you prayed for them. They're about the moments when you help a family or friend move into a new house that they they have been building uh, and looking forward to for years. 
They're about the moments when you help people. You know, it's really not that hard to start thinking about all those things. And and the conclusion that you draw from that, uh, the moments that you really feel like you have lived, the moments where you really feel like you were alive, were the moments that were filled with love. I hope that uh, our lives are filled with those memories as well. Those will never die because they were manifestations of of unending uh, loving relationships. The second thing here that uh, tells us about why love is superior, the greatest is because it's the evidence of true faith. And this is a this is a real humbling thing, but you know Jesus as he describes uh, Judgment Day in Matthew 25, when he talks about the separation of the sheep and goats, and he has all these people coming up to him and asking about whether they're in or whether they're out. And uh, Jesus makes it very clear that the test is love. It's not all the things that you believe. It's not all the things that you said you professed. Uh, The entry fee into heaven is not you quoting all the questions and answers of the catechism. Uh, What Jesus says is that the test is love. It's not your religiousness. It's not your devotion. He says it's your love. It's the very same thing that James says in James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, you show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, neither Jesus or James are saying that the irreligious or the agnostic or the faithless or the atheist are going to go to heaven uh, heaven because they happen to help people a little bit along the way. No, 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 no. They're never separating the fact that we're looking unto Jesus Christ for salvation and that we're exercising our faith uh, in Him. But you see, the test of whether we really have faith, the test of whether we really anchored our life in Jesus Christ, the test of whether we're really, really united with Him is whether we love That's it. Again, Drummond makes this clear. He says, failing to love is the proof that we never knew Jesus. Because it shows us that for us he lived in vain. It means that he never inspired anything in our lives. And that we were never near enough to Him to be seized with the spell of His compassion. You see, the impossibility of a Christian who doesn't love. The impossibility is this, is that you could look to Jesus Christ giving everything for you. In His life, in His obedience... And then this climactic death and knowing that it's all out of love for you. And then for you to look at that and say, I believe it. And yet that never inspires anything in you. It never moves you to care. It never moves you to lift a finger. It never, it never puts any desires in your heart to help others. It puts no compassion in your soul for those who are in distress. If that's the case, it means that Jesus was a complete failure. And Jesus isn't a failure. Jesus reproduces in the lives of his disciples and of his sheep the very attitudes and desires and compassions and love for people that he has for them. You see, it would mean that Jesus is a complete failure if there's no love in your life. 
you are the one that knows that. If you have a heart of stone that has zero love for people, you've got to run back to the cross. And you better run fast and start looking at it again. Our hearts can become jaded by our experiences. Our lives can become very unsavory because we're selfish. And if that's the case, you need to run to the cross this morning and see Jesus sacrificing for you in love. As you look at Jesus through the lens of that cross, through the words that he said, through the things that he did, you can't help but realize that if you're his disciple, there's got to be something of that in you. Don't let this challenge go. And the third thing uh, that we see here in the passage is why love abides forever is because it, uh, it's, it's rooted in the eternal nature of God. Alinsky is uh, so helpful here when he argues that love is the greatest because love alone makes us like God. Hope is not an attribute of God. Faith is not an attribute of God. But love is. And when we love, we're showing our likeness to God. God does not fail to reproduce His character in us. And so love is the greatest. Why is love the greatest? Well, we know. Because it lasts forever because it's the evidence of faith and because it makes us like God who is love. And as we walk away from this passage this morning, uh, we need to make sure that we don't leave chapter 13 in the book of 1 Corinthians. I hope you understood that. When we walk away from this chapter this morning, we better make sure that we don't leave chapter 13 in the book of Corinthians. We must take it with us. We must take it with us wherever we go. We must take it with us throughout our whole lives. I can sympathize with you this morning if this chapter makes you feel overwhelmed and inadequate as a Christian. I can understand this morning that as we look at this standard because it's so exhaustive and so high and so foreign to our sinful hearts that it can feel like an enormous challenge to us. But the fact of the matter is Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to correct the Corinthians. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to commend to them a better way of life. And that means that it's to be lived. 1 Corinthians 13 is to be lived. It's to be something we strive after. And so it can't be left behind. It must be carried with us where we go. And something that might help us do that is a challenge I found once again in Drummond's famous sermon where he invited his hearers to commit to reading 1 Corinthians 13 once a week for three months. And here was the reason why he challenged them with this. He said, No man can become a saint in his sleep. And to fulfill the condition required demands a certain amount of prayer and meditation and time. 
just as improvement in any direction, bodily or mental, requires preparation and care. That line is so striking. No one has ever become a saint in their sleep. You see, sanctification is a lifelong process of killing sin and striving to live in righteousness according to the grace of God. And you see, we have to consciously aim at that. And so one way this love is going to become ours, one way that's going to be worked out in our life is to come back to this chapter regularly and to read it with an eye towards Jesus Christ. And to see Him who is the one who is patient, the one who is kind, the one who bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. To see him as the one who is not jealous, who does not brag, who is not arrogant, who does not act unbecomingly, who doesn't seek his own, is not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffered, and does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So as we read chapter 13, day in and day out, week in and week out, for months upon months upon months, looking to Christ as the one who is the personification of love to its maximum degree, we keep looking and reading with an eye to Jesus Christ we will be sure that he will not fail. Jesus will not fail to impress uh, his character of love upon us and to fill our hearts with a desire to be like him, to give our soul the strength to be like him and to give us a compassion for others according to his example. May God help us embrace the challenge and may God work in us his perfect will. Let's pray a minute. Father in heaven, we stand overwhelmed this morning at the...